0: Good morning. The sermon passage this morning is from 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 through 19, and that can be found on page 1023 on your blue, in your blue Bible in front of you. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one.
1: on August 27th of this year, almost 30,000 runners lined up to participate in the Mexico City Marathon. Uh, The race is one of the premier events in the worldwide running circuit. It challenges athletes with its 7,000 foot altitude. So imagine for a second running 26 plus miles without stopping at well over a mile above sea level. It holds world athletics gold-level status, this marathon does, which means that it's recognized internationally as an event that upholds the strictest standards for event planning and organization and execution. So the organizers of the marathon boast that this great event not only represents an outstanding celebration for all the inhabitants of the capital city, but also an occasion to reaffirm the transcendental values of sport. One of those transcendental values, apparently, is cheating. It turns out people cheat all the time. In 2018, over 3,000 runners were denied their finishers medals because they failed to pass the checkpoints that are set up every five kilometers along the course. In 2017, there was over 6,000 runners disqualified, and after this year's race in 2023, over 11,000 runners were disqualified for cheating. Some were found to have used bicycles. Others jumped into cars. Still others took public transportation. Right? I mean, what's wrong with you? It is totally fine not to run a marathon. It is a very normal human activity to not run 26 miles. You can just stay home, you do not need to cheat. But in the end, it means that more than one in three of the people who began the race didn't wind up getting the prize because they failed to run the path, the race that had been set out for them. Well, on a more serious matter, the Bible often describes our lives as followers of Jesus in terms of a race or a journey. So you might remember in Matthew chapter 7 that the Lord Jesus talks in terms of paths, He says that we're all on a path, either a broad, easy path that leads comfortably and quietly to destruction, or Jesus says we're on a hard, a narrow path that leads ultimately to life. Jesus is conceiving of our lives as a path with a destination. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the Apostle Paul picks up a bit on this same imagery. He tells them in chapter 9, verse 24, that they should so run as to obtain the prize, to to live their Christian lives in such a way that they, at the end, receive the thing that they desire. Again, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul reflects on his own life. Here, close to the end, he says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, I have finished the race By which he means, he says, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. See, as Christians, we are all on a journey that ends either at our death or when the Lord Jesus returns. The goal is to make it across the finish line. The goal is for us to so live our lives, uh, to so complete our course, that we make it across the finish line faithfully and receive the reward from our gracious God. We want to end our lives faithfully, walking with the Lord Jesus. The sad truth is that not everyone who starts at the finish line finishes well. There are, in the words of the, the hymn, many dangers, toils, and snares along the way. In 1 John, the apostle tells us about the world, the flesh, and the devil, conspiring to oppose us at every step on our pilgrimage. And so the apostle Paul, in one of his letters, talks about those who shipwreck their faith. In Hebrews 10, we read about those who shrink back from the faith and are destroyed. And if you've been here for this series of sermons in the book of 1 John, you know that this was a very live issue for the church to which John was writing the congregation had just experienced a split of sorts. False teachers had come into the church and attempted to deceive the believers there. John tells us about them in 1 John 2, 26. They were teaching all sorts of doctrines and encouraging all sorts of practices that flew in the face of what the apostles had taught this church. And so when the congregation ultimately rejected these false teachers, they and some of their followers left And so John was writing to strengthen, to encourage, to embolden these faithful church members that they they had done the right thing, that that by staying faithful to the message that the apostles had proclaimed to them, that they had made the right choice. John wants them to have assurance, to know that they're on the right side when it comes to spiritual matters. So last time we were in 1 John, the apostle gave his readers his reason for writing. He says in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so as we come near to the end of John's letter, we see that he's going to visit yet again the need for vigilance when it comes to spiritual matters. And in particular, uh, in particular, he wants to warn them about the danger that sin poses to their spiritual well-being. It's as if John's saying that, look, as you run your race, as you, as you go on the path marked out for you, there are bikes and cars and buses littered all over the, late, the, ra- the race route. There are, there are temptations for you to disqualify yourself and, and miss out on the reward. And so he wants the members of the church to see the the responsibility that they have to make sure that not only they, but also their brothers and sisters get across that finish line faithfully, with their faith intact. And so as we consider these verses this morning, let's look at two things together. First, uh, let's look at the sin that leads to death. And then second, uh, let's look at the reason why you're not going to commit it. So the sin that leads to death, and then the reason that you're not actually going to commit it. So first, let's consider this idea of the sin that leads to death. So if you remember where we left off in 1 John, the apostle has been encouraging believers to have confidence when they go to their Heavenly Father in prayer. So in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, we read this. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that is God the Father, that if we ask anything according to his will, He hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. Now, moving on from that in our passage, John moves on to a specific situation in which we should ask something of the Lord. So in verses 14 and 15, he says, we can ask with great confidence, and then in verse 16, he begins to say, here's something you'll want to ask God about. Now the the wording of this section that Jordan just read for us it's somewhere between confusing and cryptic. So if you've come across me this week at some point I've said, "Hey, do you do you know what the sin that leads to death is?" And everyone goes as if to say like that's your problem, buddy. I've got problems at my job, you've got problems at your job, right? <laughs> but I think if we move slowly through this passage, I think we can we can get on solid footing and understand what John is talking about here. So there in verse 16, John says that if we see a certain situation in the life of the church, we shall ask. So the verb form that John uses there, when he says, he shall ask, it indicates not so much a command, John's not telling us to ask, he's assuming that we will. So in the scenario that John is envisioning, A believer will ask. Will ask who? The next thing that we see in the verse is that God responds to this request. So it says there that he shall ask and God will give. So it's pretty safe to assume that that God is the one we're supposed to be asking. We're talking about prayer. We're, We're talking about making our requests known to our Heavenly Father with, as John's told us, the confidence that he hears us and that we have what we've asked of him. So there's a specific situation in the church. In response, believers ask. They ask God. Okay, and then what exactly are we asking God for? Again, if you look at verse 16, what God does in response to these prayers, to the asking, is that God will give life. says that God will give him life. So we know God hears us. We know that we already have whatever we ask according to his will. And in this case, we're asking God to give someone life. And so in response to that prayer, God gives it. Okay, so then to whom is God giving life? Well, there at the beginning of verse 16, you see that it's the brother or his brother. So don't get too hung up on gender there. Uh, John's not saying males. He's just saying someone in the church, brother or sister. So if you see your brother or your sister doing something, John's saying, you should ask God and God will, in response, give him or her life. Okay, so what's going on in someone's uh, life? What scenario is prompting this prayer that we ask God to give our brother or sister life? Well, John says there in verse 16 at the beginning that we see them committing a sin not leading to death. So there at the beginning of verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask. And then again, in the middle of the verse, he says the same thing, right? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins, John repeats it again, that do not lead to death, right? And just in case you didn't get the point, there in verse 17, he says, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, that implies that there is a sin that does lead to death, right? If John says, look, there's a sin that doesn't, seems to indicate that there's also a sin that does. And in fact, at the end of verse 16, John affirms that for us. He says, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Okay, so the situation is... Uh, You see a brother or sister in the church. They're committing a sin. It happens to be a sin that doesn't lead to death. Now, that's a bit confusing. The Bible tells us that God created the world as a place of beauty and blessing. In the world that God created, everything flourished, and there was no pain, there was no death. But when the first human beings, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, when they sinned, they brought the curse of death and futility on our world. So each and every one of us has confirmed that disastrous choice by our own personal sin against God. So our pride, our jealousy, our anger, our selfishness, We we are all deserving heirs of that same legacy of death. And in fact, as you know, we all die. So in that sense, there is no sin that doesn't lead to death. All sin brings death in that sense. That seems to be what John's pointing at there in verse 17, when he reminds us that all wrongdoing is sin. Right? God is completely holy and utterly just, so there is no indiscretion, no injustice, no immorality that escapes his notice and withstands his judgment. John says there in verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin. There is no wrongdoing so small that it doesn't matter, that it doesn't qualify as sin. In that sense, all sin is the same, and all sin leads to death. And yet, however, John does seem to expect that his readers will understand him when he tells them that there are actually different kinds of sin, sin that does lead to death and sin that doesn't. And perhaps the best path forward is to see if we can figure out what John means by a sin that leads to death, right, that he mentions there at the end of verse 16. Now, there have been a bunch of different uh, possible answers or solutions to that question that have been offered. Some people have said that when John talks about the sin that leads to death, he's talking about a sin that is so egregious, so offensive to God, that God responds by taking that person's life immediately as a response. And That sounds harsh, but that wasn't actually unknown in the time of the early church. Or think about how Paul warned the church in Corinth about their conduct at the Lord's Supper, saying that some of them were getting sick and even dying because they were dishonoring the Lord's table. Think about Acts chapter 5, where Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit and immediately die as a result. Think about Acts chapter 12, where King Herod is struck down for accepting worship and glory uh, from the crowds. Those are sins, and they definitely led to death but that's most likely not what John's talking about in our passage. When John talks about life and death in his letter, he is always talking in in terms of spiritual life and spiritual death. If he were talking about this kind of physical death, it would be hard to understand even really what he's telling the church here. It would seem like his point is, hey, if someone sinned and died, you don't need to pray for them, which presumably the church already knew. Others have suggested that John is referring to the distinction that we see in the Old Testament law between unintentional sins, things that, that a, 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 a one of God's people might do sort of by accident or without knowing, and on the other hand, sins that are committed with a high hand, that is to say a, a brazen or defiant sin. And while that's possible, there's, there's really nothing that John says in this passage that would lead us to think that that's what he's talking about. Uh, Most likely, I think the best thing that we can do, and I would just say, like, stepping back, this is generally a helpful thing to remember whenever you're trying to understand a difficult passage in the Bible, is is to try to place it in its larger context. So most irresponsible interpretations of Scripture begin with wrenching a difficult statement out of context and then giving it a meaning that has nothing to do with the rest of the book in which it's contained— But generally, human beings don't just sort of drop random and disconnected ideas into the midst of their writings. And so if we step back for a second and look at the larger context of 1 John and try to put this sin that leads to death into that context, I think we can sort of figure things out here. So John's main concern in this letter, right? He's been addressing a church where false teachers and their followers have just defected. And he's writing to make sure that the remaining church, the ones who were still faithful to the confession that Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ come in the flesh to save us, right? This was the the church that was still fighting against sin in their lives, confessing sin, committing themselves to obeying the Lord and his commands. This was a church where the the people were still loving one another, caring and meeting each other's needs uh, in the congregation. John wants these people to have confidence that they have life. And he wants them to know that the people who have denied Christ, uh, the people who, who have refused to obey his commands, the people who show no love for the people in the church, John wants the congregation to know that those people who left, they don't have life because they don't have Jesus. Remember, this is what we've already seen in 1 John, in chapter 3, verse 14. John says, we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. In 1 John 5, 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I think in that larger context, it would seem that what John means by a sin that leads to death is not sort of one discrete action or even an attitude that one might unintentionally commit or sort of slip into. But rather, the sin that leads to death is one or more of the following things. A self-conscious and deliberate denial that Jesus is the Son of God. The Christ who's come in the flesh to save us. Or or, or a settled and unrepentant decision to ignore God's commands. Or an unwillingness to love brothers and sisters in the church. I think in short, the sin that leads to death is the behavior of the false teachers. The very things that John's been speaking about for this whole letter, right? he, the, very, the very things that these deceivers were trying to get the church to embrace, those things lead to spiritual death because they're a rejection of Jesus himself. They're, they're, they amount to rejecting his identity and his lordship over them and, and his people. Uh, These things are sins that lead to death, not because they're so bad that they can't possibly be forgiven. Thank God we can be forgiven for lacking love for one another and for disobeying God's commands. These sins lead to death, not because they're so bad that they put us outside the realm of God's grace, but because by the very nature of them, they cut you off from the one who can save you. To reject Jesus is to reject the grace of God that we need to be forgiven and so that sin leads to death. So what does that mean for us then? I think this is a call to vigilance. All wrongdoing is sin. Uh, All sin is serious and carries death along with it. Again, remember, uh, we're, we're all guilty of all manner of sin. Back in chapter one, John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If you think about it, we've all committed all of the sins that John's been talking about in this letter. Right? We're all guilty of committing the kinds of sins that lead to death. Right? We all violate God's commands. We've all loved things more than we've loved the Lord Jesus, right? treating him as if he were something less than the Son of God. We're all selfish at times, indifferent, judgmental. We've all robbed our brothers and sisters of the love that they deserve from us. And so the the danger is that these smaller expressions of rebellion and apostasy and unbelief that they, that they will grow, that they'll metastasize, that they'll eventually come to characterize our lives. And so what are we to do? How do we prevent the sin in our life from becoming spiritually disastrous? How do we avoid sin that leads to death? Well, again, John's told us earlier in this letter, back in chapter 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we confess our sin, confident that Jesus, the Son of God, took on flesh and died as an atoning sacrifice for us, that he gave up his life on the cross for us as a substitute, that he took our punishment on himself there. And so there's now a remedy, there's a cure for sin but we do more than just confess. If you look there in verse 16, it's clear that John understands that when sin enters into our lives, one of the ways that the Lord protects us, one of the ways that the Lord cares for us is by giving us brothers and sisters in the church who will pray for us. And John says there in verse 16, in response to those prayers, God will give us life. He will bless us with repentance with growth, with with change as he hears the prayers of our brothers and sisters on our behalf. Now, just briefly, I've got to mention there at the end of verse 16, John does say something, again, a bit confusing. He says, there is a sin that leads to death. He says, I do not say that one should pray for that. We don't often see the Bible telling us not to pray. right? So this sounds strange to us. But just notice, John actually isn't telling the church not to pray. He's not saying don't pray for the people who've, who've left. right? Don't pray for these people whose sin leads to death. He's simply saying that that's not the kind of prayer he's talking about. He's not insisting that the church pray for those people who have cut themselves off from Christ and from the congregation. So there's always hope for repentance. It's always good to pray that God would move in someone's life to grant them a change of heart, but, but given that you can't pray for everyone all the time everywhere, John here is concerned that the church pray for one another, that the church prays for people who actually want to follow Jesus. He's not forbidding prayer for these false teachers, but he's just saying he's not commanding it either. So if you step back, I think you see that John has a vision of congregational life that may be challenging to us as we live as Christians in 21st century America and as we think about church. We might be tempted to think of church as a place we come on Sundays and we sing and we pray and we hear God's word. We might serve in some ways, have some friendly conversation. But here John assumes more than just that. He expects that brothers and sisters in a congregation will be involved in one another's lives to the extent that we will know when there is dangerous sin in someone else's life. And he also assumes that we're going to care enough about that sin to pray earnestly for one another, that the Lord might grant life in place of sin. And so what does that look like for our church congregation? I think one of the ways we live out what John is pointing to here in verse 16 is through our weekly prayer of confession. We take time together each week as a church to talk to the Lord about our sin and to ask him for help, to ask him to help us to turn from those sins, to grant us life and faith in place of the sin that that tends to death. And in that prayer of confession, we're not just praying for our own personal sins. We're praying for the sins of our brothers and sisters as well. Every once in a great while, I'll have someone come up and say to me something like, you know, in the prayer of confession, I was kind of offended because the person praying said, Lord, we've, we've done this thing and I haven't actually done that thing. And I would just say that's a bad look to begin with, right? Like that's generally not the posture you want to sort of enter prayer with. But even if that is in fact true of you, if if someone leading the the prayer of confession happens to confess a sin that, that you maybe haven't committed in the past week, well, if someone in your church family did, then we have a corporate identity and we go to the Lord together and we say, Lord, we have sinned. Even if I'm personally not responsible for that sin, I so love my brother and sister, I'm so connected to them spiritually that I can come before the Lord together with everyone else and say, we have sinned in this way. We don't sit out the portion of the prayer that doesn't address sins that we struggle with, but we pray, Lord, keep me from that sin. I pray for others, my brothers and sisters in the church who need to be delivered from it. Lord, help us. We also have to have ways that it's normal for other people in the church to know what's going on in our lives, in our minds, behind closed doors. Right, if your marriage is in trouble, if you're struggling with habitual sins, drunkenness, sexual immorality, deceit, if you're wrestling with doubt, if you feel the world and its pleasures increasingly pulling at you, for your own spiritual safety, you need to let others in the church know. To my knowledge, no one in this congregation has magical powers. No one can read your mind no one can see through closed doors. And so if you don't tell anyone, no one will know. You can keep your sin pretty well hidden, just like you can keep your disease hidden from your doctor. If no one knows, no one will pray and no one will help. This is why we have a men's group that meets roughly every other week, right? Much of the point of that is to provide a place and a time where it is as easy as possible and as normal as possible to talk about what's actually going on in our lives. But even then, it's possible to to hide things from the people who are supposed to be helping you and supporting you and praying for you. Perhaps you might consider, if you're a, a, a guy, signing up for that group when it relaunches in January. Do it for your own spiritual good, but maybe consider doing it also for the good of others so that you can know how to pray for your brothers in the church. John has been repeatedly pointing us to to love for one another as a key expression of the life of Christ in us, right? How do you know that you really have eternal life? John says, do you love your brothers? Well, one of the ways that that love gets played out is by praying for one another, praying that we would persevere in the faith, praying that God would continue to lead us on the path that takes us to life. If you don't know where to get started in terms of letting someone know what's going on in your life so that you can get help, you can, you can talk to anybody. You can talk to an elder, certainly. Talk to a friend in the church. Talk to someone in your small group. You can talk to Brenda, our biblical counselor. The point is that if no one knows, right, if you allow shame or pride or indifference to, to drive you into hiding, then you're, you're running in spiritually dangerous territory. You're cutting yourself off from the very thing that God intends to use to give you life rather than death. So we as a church need to be a place where it's normal to talk about what's actually going on, the sin in our lives, so that we can pray for one another and care for one another, confident that God will use those prayers to grant us life. Okay, so with that said, let's look at our second thing to see this morning. If that's the sin that leads to death, right? These, these sins that have characterized the false teachers, right? denial of Christ, lack of love for the brothers and sisters, uh, unwillingness to obey God's commands, let's look and see then the reason why you're not going to commit those sins in such a way that they lead to death. So again, we've already begun to touch on this with the emphasis that John places on prayer. But there in verses 18 to 19, we see the apostle zooms out And he shows us that that our spiritual well-being, our perseverance in the faith, our continuing our race, staying on the path, experiencing life rather than death, it's actually part of a much larger, bigger, cosmic, spiritual struggle. John sets the stage for us there in verse 19. He says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There are two sides. John says the world lies in the power of the evil one. We know from other scriptures that Satan blinds people so that they can't see the glory of God in Christ. Satan snatches the gospel word out of people's hearts so that they don't believe it. Satan deceives and hinders and attacks. And so John is reminding us that that there's nothing out there worth envying. The world, those false teachers, those disciples that went out after them, don't think that they have it better. Don't think that it might be better if you were in their camp. John says they've gone out into the world. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to understand that God's word presents us with a world that is binary. It's broken up into to two parts. There are only two kinds of people, according to verse 19. Uh, on one hand, you have those who are born of God, those who have turned from their sins and put their trust in Jesus, God's son. And on the other hand, you have those who belong to the world, the world that lies in the power of the evil one. So that's not to say that if you aren't a Christian, you self-consciously love and follow the devil. Rather, it's to say that, that that is the default setting of every human being. We have all sinned and we inherit death and slavery to sin as a result. But friend, the good news this morning is that God loved the world enough to send his own son to save you from sin and death, to deliver us. Jesus gave up his life on the cross, taking on himself the sin and the punishment that his people deserved. And Jesus rose from the dead in victory, demonstrating that his sacrifice was acceptable to God and proving that he is able to save us. And so there's nothing that you need to do to get out of that that first group the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And to get into that second group, right, those who are born of God, right, there's no, there's no good work you need to perform in order to earn your way from one camp into the other. There's no amount of cleaning up your act that's required of you before you, you leave one camp and go to the other. Even today, right now, God extends salvation to you through his son. You can be, in John's words, born of God You can be sheltered from the devil who seeks to do you permanent spiritual harm. All you have to do is turn from your sin, The Bible calls that repentance and put your trust in Jesus. If you have questions about what that means or if you want to talk more uh, with someone, I'd encourage you not to let that, that rest and linger, but actually to pursue that vigorously as soon as possible. Talk to the person who invited you to church this morning. You can talk to anybody that you've seen up here Today, you can come talk to me after the service. All of us would be delighted to tell you more about what it means to be saved through faith in Jesus. We see that John contrasts the world to his readers. The world lies in the power of the evil one. But he says, we, there in verse 19, John associates himself with the church and its members. He says, we know that we are from God. We know that we are from God. We're not, John says, under the power of the evil one. You can see why we need this assurance, right? John has raised the specter of sin that leads to death, but he trusts that the church is safe, that they are from God. Well, how does John know that? Why can he have that confidence? Well, because of the three tests that he's been putting forward throughout his letter. Because John knows that these church members love one another. He knows that their lives are marked by obedience to God's commands. And he knows that they've held firm to the confession that Jesus is the Son of God come in the flesh to save them. And so here at the end of his letter, John is telling them essentially that after having gone through all the evidence, even though they are weak, even though they are you know, prone to stumbling, even though they have sin that they need to confess, they love and they obey and they believe. And so, John says, We know that we're from God. You can imagine how much that would have meant to this church to hear the apostle tell them that. There in verse 18, we have this wonderful promise that applies to everyone who is from God. It says there, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. So everyone born of God, everyone who has received new spiritual life as a free gift from God, that person's spiritual life is characterized by the fact, John says there, that they do not keep on sinning. So we've seen this throughout John's letter. He particularly hammers it back in chapter three. We saw there that it doesn't mean that we don't sin anymore. It doesn't mean that we don't have any besetting sins with which we struggle throughout our lives, but it does mean that we have a transformed relationship with sin. Sin no longer characterizes us. We no longer live for it. We no longer love it, but we confess it and we turn from it. We don't keep on sinning, as John says there in verse 18, because if we kept on sinning, that would lead to death. That's what the evil one wants. That's his desire. That's his design. That's what he accomplishes in the lives of the people that that lie under his power. But praise God there in verse 18, John says that the evil one doesn't touch the person who's been born of God. He says there at the end, the evil one does not touch him. He might harass. He might tempt He might attack, but he cannot do real spiritual harm to any one of God's children. Why not? Well, John tells us there in the middle of verse 18, it's because we are protected by he who was born of God. It could be that John's talking about a fellow believer there, like back in verse 16, a fellow believer who prays on our behalf, but it seems more likely that, that he who is born of God is referring to the Lord Jesus himself. God protects us and that protection comes in the form of a person. It comes as the gift of the Lord Jesus himself. There's not one spiritual blessing. There's not one ounce of spiritual protection that we can seek apart from the Lord Jesus. But in him, we are protected and the evil one cannot touch us. The takeaway for those who are in Christ is clear. We are not on our own. God has not left you to your own devices. Your eternal good is not hanging in the balance this morning. The danger that we face is real. There is a sin that leads to death. Unbelief, lovelessness, lawlessness are very real threats to our spiritual life but the protection and the care that God offers to his children in the Lord Jesus Christ is also very real. And so as we run our race to the end, we have an enemy who seeks to to waylay us, who wants to destroy us. But in every way that ultimately matters, John reminds us here and encourages us, he cannot touch us. This life, brothers and sisters, it's not a time of peace. It is not ease. It is not time for complacency. That's what we receive as our eternal reward. That's what it will be like when we are with the Lord. Now is the time for vigilance and endurance and prayer. We fight with the the weapons that God's given us, with, with prayer, personal prayer, corporate prayer for one another. We fight with faith and love. But if you know yourself very well, you know that if it depends on you, if everything hinges on your effort, if if we're talking about your self-control and your will to keep yourself in the faith, to keep deadly sin at bay, well, you know that you're in trouble. So, the good news is that we fight the fight, we run the race, knowing that God is greater than all and that He is watching over us. Back in chapter four, John told us, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. Ultimately, our hope for our eternal spiritual life is grounded not on anything in us, not in something we've done. or or our commitment, but to God's commitment to us, right? We don't don't sing, I will hold me fast, right? No, we rejoice. He will hold me fast. That's what matters, right? In his little letter, Jude tells us in Jude 24 that God is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Jude tells us that God keeps us He protects us. He guards us as we run our race. He has committed himself to seeing us safely home into his presence. And friends, God's undefeated. He never loses. He never fails. He's never challenged. This is the truth that Jesus is talking about in John chapter 10, where he speaks of his disciples in terms of sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus tells us God doesn't lack the power to keep us. He says he's greater than all. He doesn't lack the motivation and love to keep us. Brothers and sisters, this is why we pray for one another. We pray with confidence and joy, knowing that our heavenly Father hears us. Knowing that he will give us whatever we ask when we ask for him to keep one another safe. And to keep us from the evil one. And one of the ways that God extends this protection to his people one of the ways that he, he manifests it in our lives to, the, to those who are born of God is, is through the weekly celebration of the Lord's Supper. It's a great gift to us as we persevere in the faith, as we run our race. This is, this is something like a, a water station along the route. It's here that we live out the faith that overcomes the world and the evil one, as John puts it in 1 John 5.5. 5. As we come to the table, we examine ourselves. We confess the wrongdoing in our life. We commit ourselves afresh to obeying God's commands. And we ask God to give life to his people in place of their sin. Here we confess that Jesus is the Christ. That he is the son of God who took on flesh. That he offered up his body and he offered up his blood on the cross in order to save us. And here at the table, we affirm our love and our care and our affection for one another in this church family. We acknowledge that we are a body together and we commit ourselves to one another in love. And in doing those three things, we are living out the spiritual life that God gives to his people. We are are demonstrating that we are in fact born of God because that's what people who are born of God do They confess the truth. They hate their sin. They love each other. Now before we come to the table, it's appropriate to take a moment to examine our lives, to to pray about our sin as we've been thinking about in this passage from 1 John chapter 5. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 tells the church explicitly to examine yourselves before you come to the table. Now the Lord's Supper is for those who are born of God. Who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ, who have demonstrated obedience by following Christ and his command to be baptized, who are connected to a church family uh, through membership. The Lord's invitation to come to his table is gracious. So he doesn't extend it to you on the basis of how good your week has been, but on the basis of how good Jesus is. So the, the Lord's table is not a performance review where you kind of look at how you did this week in terms of sin and love and faith and and decide whether you're worthy to come to the table or not. This is a meal for sinners who have been saved by grace, but it's not something to be taken lightly. So if you know yourself not to be a Christian, then this meal actually isn't for you, at least not yet. So instead of coming forward now, we'd encourage you to use this time to think about your need for a savior, your need to be born of God, We would love nothing more than to welcome you to this table at some point in the future after you put your trust in Christ. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but your life is is inconsistent with what we've been seeing in 1 John, if your life is marked by sin that you have no intention of turning from or or repenting of, if you hold bitterness and hatred in your heart towards a brother or sister and you have no intention of turning from it, well, you must do what Christians do, and that is repent. Confess your sin to the Lord and turn your back on it. And only then come to the Lord's table. This is a meal for sinners, but it's a meal for repentant sinners. And so we'll take a a moment now to confess our sin to the Lord. We'll have a time for sort of quiet reflection and, and personal prayer. And then I'll lead us in a corporate prayer of confession where we can pray for each other, knowing that God hears us and will give us life. And then we'll We'll sing together and we'll celebrate. So let's pray.